Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We are in week two of our brand new Sermon on the Mount series. Um, remember, we're on this hillside. Jesus has called us up on the hillside. We're following him. And he goes, guys, I have some things to teach you. I got some things I want to lay out. And this is Jesus's kingdom of heaven talk. It's all about the kingdom of heaven. How do you get in? What is it life like? Once you get in, what is, what is the kingdom of heaven all about? What is this kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven? A lot of talk about that. And this is Jesus's unpacking of it, laying it all out for us and going, here's what it is. Last week was pretty important. We set it all up. Uh, we said we're going to start in Matthew 5, and then um, we got through one verse, okay? So we're flying today compared to that. Um, you might want to go back and watch and listen to last week if you missed that. It'll help this week and all the weeks to come make a whole lot of sense because we really set up the context. But um, what we want to hear as Jesus walks through the Sermon on the Mount is we want to hear that he's creating pathways to life descriptions of life, expectations of life. It's all about what is life. And he's saying, in the kingdom of heaven, there's life. And everywhere else, while you're living, you're not really living. There's not fullness there. And so what we're going to see today is he's going to start talking about the marks of people who are in the kingdom. This is interesting to me because I've been reading this book because you're going to think I'm pretty cool after I tell you this. But I've been reading this book called Red Meat Republic, which is a history of the beef industry as it shapes America. Want to be friends? Okay. Um, Why does he read stuff like? Nobody knows. So one of the interesting things that came up in the the book, though, is the brand. You know, like cattle have brands on them. So this cattle has some sort of brand on it. I don't know what it looks like, a wishbone with a T-top. I don't know. They brand the cattle. Why do they brand cattle? What's the point? Well, back in the day, if you had, let's say, um, in Texas, if you had 300 cattle and you wanted to take them to Chicago to where the slaughterhouses were to take them to market so they can get um, dealt with and then shipped off east so actual humans could eat them because there were way more cows in Texas than people at the time. What you would do is you would drive the cattle, right? So two guys on horseback and 300 cattle have to go like a thousand miles through plains and prairies up to Chicago where they then get put into the slaughterhouse process, processed and um, eaten. Okay, so that's how that worked. But on the journey, what would happen is these cows would intermingle with other cows. Is people have open prairie and there's ranch land. And so my cows would mix with your cows and smart people, not always honest, smart people, rustlers, they would call them, would begin stealing your, ch- your cows. And so you would start with 300 cows and you'd, not your children, I almost said that. <laughs> you heard it, I'm sorry. I mean, they're like children to us, aren't they? These ch- okay. Um, <laughs> They would, they would steal your cows. You'd start with 300. You'd get to Chicago with 240. And you'd go like, I mean, that's a lot of money I lost along the way. But there was no way to say that they were mine or yours. And so they created a brand so that you could easily and quickly identify which were yours and which were not. So if someone goes, no, those are mine, you'd be like, well, that one has the same mark as all my others. So that's what it is. Okay. So as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, it's a long-winded way of saying this. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to consider that this... Um, these next three chapters of the Bible is really God's marks on us. 
that those of us who might live out this way, those of us who live out the way of Jesus as described in the Sermon on the Mount, what we're really doing is evidencing the mark of Jesus in the kingdom life on us. And, and so if we yearn for that, if we yearn to be set apart as this counterculture, this different thing, then, then what we're going to find is this is the pathway to that life. This is the mark of that life. It'll, be, it'll look like these pages look. Marked by Jesus, if we choose that path, we'll never be the same. So we go into Matthew 5. Scripture says, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, he, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We're going to stop there. Blessed, you have to ask the first question, what, what does this mean? What is blessed or blessed? What is, we don't use that word a lot. Blessed am I for making this traffic light. Blessed that, the, you know, we, it's just not how we talk. Roughly translated, literally roughly translated, it's happy. But, but any serious Bible commentator says it's not really happy, though. This is not God's prescription for happiness. If you can just get sad enough and poor enough, you'll be happy. Like, that's not it. So it's a, it's a tough thing to kind of work way around. Happiness is, is too subjective. Your definition of happy is different than mine. I want um, snow and a cabin and a book by myself, and you want a beach party with all your friends, and we'd each be happy, but that's two different things. So, so we can't really prescribe it that way. Blessed here is almost, I would say, uh, let's call it profound satisfaction. Profound satisfaction. Have you ever uh, received some blessing to the point where your only response is you think or you say, you bless me. This blesses me. I don't know what else to say. When we were living in South Africa as missionaries, our visas ran out. Kind of a problem if you're trying to live in a foreign country. And um, we realized pretty quickly, my wife and I, that we had to come home like in a hurry. And we weren't really prepared at that moment to come home. We had a plan and this was not part of the plan because they had renewed visas just seamlessly every time we went in every three months. And at one point they said, yeah, yeah, we don't think so anymore. And so we had to make a plan and we kind of let the world know um, the same way you did back in the day, which is not through the way you would do it. Now with smoke signals and carrier pigeons, we got the word out and somebody said, um, I'll pay for your flights. If you really need to come home, I know this was unplanned, I'll pay for your flights. And it's like $3,000 that we didn't have and didn't know where it was going to come from. Someone said, we'll take care of it. And someone else said, who was living in New York, someone else said, you know what? Um, why don't you come and spend a few days with us and decompress? We got you. You can stay with us, use our house, we'll buy you some Broadway tickets. We'll like, we'll just, we want to give you some space. And, and we didn't know what to do or how to respond to this. And we just looked at each other. And we were like, this is what it feels to be blessed. We can't repay this. We didn't earn this. We don't know what to do with it other than to, to kind of feel really small about it all and go, thank you. And you want to protest, but, but, but you can't do that. And they go, well, we just did. So what are you going to do about it? You go, okay. We felt small. We felt, I, I would call it, we felt helpless wholeness. You ever felt that? Helpless wholeness? Where somebody's kind of overwhelmed you or, or, or you feel this, this feeling of wholeness, but you were helpless. You didn't create it. You didn't bring it upon yourself. You didn't earn it. You just feel like everything is right. Maybe you felt this when going through something, something heavy. And you have a friend that leaned in close and and had the perfect presence in that moment or gave you the perfect words in that moment, you went, oh, wow, that blesses me. 
Great blessing makes us feel small. I think it makes us feel helpless, wholeness, uh, profound satisfaction. And so when we read blessed are, we're not going to read happy are. We're going to read maybe profoundly satisfied are or helplessly whole are. So we start with verse 3. We go to verse 3 and we look at it in more detail. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't like the term poor in spirit. I don't, I mean, it doesn't, the Bible was right in doing it, but we, we lose that. Too many people get caught on poor. Churches all over the world will say that poverty is then good. We should aim for more poverty. There are whole um, places in the world where people are aiming to have less money because of this verse, and that's a misreading of the verse. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, in spirit, and, and what it's meaning is uh, we're going to use the term spiritual bankruptcy instead. Spiritual bankruptcy is where we want to go. So we would say, blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Like if you were bankrupt and you wanted to buy a car, you go to the dealership, you say, I like this one. They go, great, let's talk to the financing team. You go, that won't be a problem, I'm bankrupt. (laughs) You walk home from the dealership, right? If you're bankrupt, you can't buy what you want to buy. You don't have it. You're insufficient. You have insufficient funds. Spiritual bankrupt is the same. I'm broken. I want to earn kingdom life. I want to earn Jesus's love. I want to earn my way into heaven. It's not possible. You're bankrupt. Spiritually, you can't earn it. You can't afford it. You're insufficient. So so we are afflicted with spiritual bankruptcy. This is not popular. We live in a pull yourself up by your bootstraps culture. We live in a do-it-yourself kind of Protestant Midwestern work ethic sort of culture, we can get it done. I can do anything. Don't tell me what I can't do. The internet has not helped this. I don't know if you've ever seen these. I have an example of one of these do-it-yourself internet videos. Um, This look, you know, vaguely familiar. I added the emojis because the kids are into the emojis, guys. So this was a 27-second video that came up on YouTube Shorts, Instagram Reels, TikTok Blocks. I don't know what they're called. So um, this, this woman says... Got this house, backyard's a mess. One day demo, one day reno. And she does this one day thing where there's like quick cuts of her. She's weed eating, who knows what. That's a different angle than the other one. You might notice that. And then it turns around and really quickly, then she's spraying paint on something and she builds a deck. Um, I'd like to point out, she said, uh, this is a floating deck. You know what that means? I laid wood on the ground. It's not anchored to anything. So you could build a deck in a day if you just lay wood on the ground. Anyway, so... All she did was put some furniture in a backyard and some pebbles. So, but she goes through it in 24 seconds later. And then um, I didn't know this was a thing, but I watched like three or four of these. I was going to show you one. And I thought, this is worthless. I'll just talk for twice as long instead. And then right towards the end of the video, she does this. And everything changes. Her outfit changes miraculously. And she walks off. She goes from like working clothes to going out clothes. And she walks off the deck and she's so, see, she got it right there. And she's so happy. She just did it, and you could do it too in a day if you weren't so lazy and dumb, (laughs) right? That's the implication of every one of these videos. You're like, oh, what would I do? And then it's a do-it-yourself everything, and in 27 seconds, they convince you that you're worthless because I can do it, and look, all right, guys, and I just about lost it. So it's not even part of the sermon. I just want to rant about that for a minute. I'm kidding. Um, I'm not mad at the DIY crowd. She's more talented than I am at all the things she did, guaranteed. But what it does is it feeds the flames of inadequacy within us, 
And it bothers me on a metaphorical level. It doesn't bother me for what it is. What it is, is fine. I don't care. It bothers me on a metaphorical level. We can't grab a soul that's overgrown with weeds of sin and death. And then in its state of general brokenness and disrepair, we just kind of like, check it out, guys, all better. It doesn't work. But that's, that's ingrained in us that we can, if we just get clever enough and snap our fingers, we can make what's broken whole. It doesn't work. But there is a reason we love this stuff. Like, we will watch these for hours because it's somehow, there's something in it that we like. There's something redemptive that we like. I will admit that I have found my new favorite television show. I've watched five episodes and I'm hopelessly addicted. It's called Homestead Rescue. Has anybody seen this show? <laughs> this is the last thing anyone would ever think I would ever watch, just so you know. I'm sitting on my couch, I'm reading books about cattle, watching Homestead Rescue. I don't know what's happening. Boys in the Midwest now. This is an incredible show about this family that goes to people's homesteads, which apparently is where people are trying to live off the land, but people who are ill-equipped to do it are too naive or just overwhelmed, and they just go and fix everything. And they take some seven days and they get it done. Somehow this is better than um, the short videos. I, I like the idea because what they do for people is they, they show people that you're never too far gone. That no matter how dire your situation, there's always hope out there. There's always redemption. No one's beyond it. There's this beautiful truth. And so I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what they're talking about. None of these ideas make any sense to me. There's cisterns and there's I don't, chickens. Of, I don't know what's happening. But I do know that every time they show up, it looks like one thing and they say, we can help. And over the course of seven days with a crew, everything starts to look up. I think that's the beautiful truth that the Sermon on the Mount wants to offer us when it says you're spiritually bankrupt, but you don't apply to be on Homestead Rescue until you, until you recognize you need help. And then you apply because you go, we're, we're bankrupt at this. We're no good at this. We need help. You and I, we don't ever get to the point of, of Lord, we need help because we're trying to be sufficient in ourselves. We're trying to do it ourselves. We're trying to will it through ourselves. We're trying to work it through ourselves. Jesus is teaching us how we find restoration and redemption and rescue. And, and it runs against the wisdom of the world. The world is saying, you can figure it out. We'll get you there. And the Sermon on the Mount is saying, I know you think you can do it, but you need to think again. And we don't like that. The kingdom of heaven can't be stormed or conquered. There's no do-it-yourself option available. Only when you realize that you are bankrupt and have no hope of spiritual restoration in yourself no amount of doing better, no amount of getting better, no frequency of church attendance, no behavior modification or habitual sin removal, no amount of anything you can do makes you right. Only then does hope show up. Like you have to get hopeless in yourself to realize that there's hope out there somewhere else. The homesteaders have to get hopeless in their own efforts to realize they need an external source to come and bring hope. In 1910, a British newspaper asked um, the prominent intellectuals and in, oh, we would call them influencers, but the intellectuals of the time to answer a question with a, a series of essays. And so every week they'd run a different essay from these, these prominent intellectuals in Britain. And the question they asked each one was, what is wrong with the world? What's most wrong with the world? And you got all kinds of answers and these long flowing essays, these beautiful ideas and solutions on the back end. And, and the question was invited to bring this, this weight 
of response. What's most wrong with the world? They made the mistake of asking theologian G.K. Chesterton. He responded like this. He said, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That was his whole article. And they were like, you're supposed to really write hundreds of words. He goes, no, you don't have to get past this. I'm what's most wrong with the world. He had realized on a fundamental level that he was broken, and it it was his brokenness extrapolated amongst all of us that is the problem with the world. It's not this political movement or this religious bankruptcy. It's I'm broken. And if I realize I'm broken, now we have a starting point. An admission of hopelessness is the first invitation to hope. If you got diagnosed with something, you only got diagnosed because you realized you couldn't fix it at home. You had to go in and say, I don't know what is happening. Can you help me? And only in the diagnosis is there a prescription and a prognosis for how you get better. We never invite rescue until we admit we need it. You never invite rescue until you admit that you need it. So in a self-help world of the seven habits of highly successful Christians or whatever we have now, Poor in spirit means admitting that we are the problem and we can't fix it, that we are bankrupt spiritually. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't just teach us what life in the kingdom is like. It exposes our inability to manufacture it ourselves. You can't make yourself clean. You can't save yourself. And Jesus says, only when you recognize that you're bankrupt will you truly come to find hope in me and my kingdom. Because as long as you're building your kingdom, you don't need me. And that leads us somewhere else. Once we realize we're bankrupt, that leads us to the next point, which is what? Where does he go from there? Blessed, in verse 4, Profoundly satisfied, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, taken out of context, we give this to people who are mourning a loss. The Bible is full of all the examples of how God does comfort those who mourn. This is not that. This is blessed those who mourn. Having just recognized that you're spiritually bankrupt, that you're poor and can't save yourself, that will necessarily lead you to mourning. A profound sorrow at what you're incapable of doing. Well-known are the stages of grief. Maybe you've uh, walked through this before. I'll put them on the screen for you. On the left is what um, the chart looks like, and on the right is what you more commonly experience. Um, It's just the way it works, right? Anybody who's been through grief on a profound level knows that it is the chart on the right. That's the path to getting whole and healing. Um, And there's obviously a whole lot more detail behind this. There's a lot more nuance that goes with this. There's a lot more angles that people have covered. But this is sort of the common um, denial, then anger, then depression, then bargaining, and then finally acceptance. This is kind of the common pathway we see people walk when they're mourning, grieving. Have you ever had a flight delay? Yeah. You know the stages of grief. If you've ever had a flight delay, you will know profoundly the stages of grief. I once slept, uh, you know, where the gate agent stands. If you go behind the gate agent, there's like that fake wall. There's like got to be 40 good inches of ground space between the window and the gate. So we slept behind gate B10 in Chicago one time because we missed the flight and it was too late and there was nowhere to go. And so we just slept there at B10. We also slept in Jamaica. There was a non-air-conditioned airport, but we, the flight, everything got canceled. We slept there once. Spent 12 hours in San Antonio, which is not a fun airport to spend 12 hours. It's not a fun hour to spend 20 minutes in. 12 hours is a long time. And everything got delayed, and we just sat there. And I, I get stuck on denial. I'm always in denial mode. It's going to be fine. They're going to load us. Everything's fine. Look, they put a new time up. Like, I'm, in, I'm such an, you know, 
Oh, it said 10.12, but now it says 10.18. It's just a six-minute delay. My wife, on the other hand, I would call her cynical. The problem is she's just right. They'll put us on the plane, start doing the announcement stuff, and she'll go, we're not leaving. We're never getting off the ground on this flight. I'll be like, come on. Of course we are. Why would they go to all the trouble of putting us on the plane? I'm in denial. She's already breezing through it all. She's anger, depression. She's through it. She's like, acceptance, this is the worst. Everything's over. And we keep getting off the plane. We've been put on planes two or three times. Get on the plane, off the plane, on the plane, off the plane. Nothing is worse than getting on the plane. They start the engines. They go, oh, something was wrong mechanically. Oh, we had one time where the international flight crew timed out. It's such a long flight, the flight crew timed out. They can't actually work, so they'd have to kind of clock out on the middle of the flight, and that wouldn't be good. So everybody off the plane, and I am always in denial. It's going to be fine. We're going to make it. And she goes, just give up and die. (laughs) Why do we do this? Denial keeps me from admitting that there's a problem. I don't want to admit there's a problem. I just want to go home. And yet there's always a problem. Denial is my way of pushing pain a little further away. It just gives me a little bit more breathing room between me and the actual pain of we need to find a new solution to getting home because this flight's not leaving. Denial is uh, my protection mechanism to keep something a little bit further from me because I don't like how it feels when it gets close. Keeps me from seeking out a true solution. Like I can't mourn sin if I won't admit that it's there. So those of us who are good at denial are also those of us who don't do very well with mourning our sin. Just maybe it's all going to be fine. Others of us mourn over sin, but not in repentance. We're sorry, but we're sorry that we got caught, not sorry that we're sinning. And that's a real difference, and we won't spend too much time on it, but we got to really figure that out. I have children. Some of you have children. Children, there's two different types of I'm sorry. There's one, I'm sorry you caught me, and there's the other that's I'm sorry that I did that. And sometimes you have to do a whole lot of um, disciplining on the I'm sorry you caught me to get to the I'm sorry I did that. But those are real different responses, right? Until we recognize that what's wrong with the world is me, that my sin is the issue. Until we recognize that, we're stuck blaming others. We either live in denial, it's okay, it'll be fine, it's fine, we'll leave soon. Or we begin blaming others for what's wrong with the world. We blame others for what's wrong with us. The brokenness inside of me is not on me, that's not my fault. My parents didn't love me right, my lovers didn't stick with me, religious people are too rigid, irreligious people are too immoral. The problem is always somebody else's. Deny, deny deny. Only when we accept our bankruptcy can we begin to mourn our hopelessness. But the scripture says we're not without hope. Paul writes to the Corinthians in this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, praise be to God and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Paul is clear that there's comfort to be had. That in Jesus, there's comfort upon comfort upon comfort. That God the Father wants to surround you and embrace you in your sufferings, in your failings, in your afflictions. God wants to comfort in everything. Jesus says, you don't find comfort in denial, you find comfort in me. Not in running to your next do-it-yourself project, only when you run to me. 
Only when you admit and accept hopelessness and bankruptcy, that you're out of options and ideas, only then do you actually get to the place where you go, maybe I do need this Jesus. And then Jesus meets you there and comfort abounds. So we are now bankrupt and mourning. What comes next? Verse 5, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Meekness in our culture is considered weakness. Meekness is weakness. Biblically, meekness is having a true view of yourself. Uh, Matthew Henry says it's a tranquil stillness of the soul that is at rest in Christ. Meekness is a satisfaction and and a soul-level, profound soul-level comfort and settled assurance and confidence in something outside of yourself. I can be meek because it isn't a power play that's going to win this game. I can can sit back and watch because God is in control. So if we're spiritually bankrupt and and mourning our sin, we begin to see ourselves honestly and then honestly see our Savior. So meekness is then um, our gift because He's strong. I don't have to dominate because God is in control. It's a continuation of Jesus flipping the script. We've said the kingdom of heaven flips the script on the kingdom of the world. In a world of ruthless aggression and power plays, of manipulation and market movers, in a world that tells us that sex and status will eventually satisfy Jesus said, humility marks the inhabitants of the kingdom. A radical meekness is what you'll find in those who find themselves in the kingdom. Blessed are the meek. Profoundly satisfied are the meek. Helplessly whole are the meek. Meekness, after all, was how Jesus accomplished our salvation in the first place. You go back to the prophet Isaiah and his description of what the Savior would do and go through. Isaiah 53 He, referencing Jesus, was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet never said a word. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. We have left God's paths to follow our own. That sounds like admission. We're no longer denying. And then like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep silent, he did not open his mouth. Meekness, biblically, is nails driven into hands and feet. Meekness is incredible strength and reliance on a will greater than your own. Meekness is allowable because there's a greater plan unfolding. A kingdom story is unfolding for you today. A kingdom story is unfolding in your life. The Lord invites you every single day. Do you want to be part of this kingdom story? It won't look like the world looks. It won't look like power looks. It won't look like healing looks. And anywhere else you go, you'll run to all these different places that seem to offer satisfaction and none of them ever get you there. And in frustration and in toil, you say, something's wrong. Something's not working. Something's not connecting. That all of the pain, it's someone else's fault. And we deny, deny, deny that it's anything to do with us. And only when we get to the place where we go, you know what? It's something in me and there must be a greater plan. There must be a kingdom story unfolding here. And it isn't revolving around me. It's revolving around something greater. Only when we're done with denial do we find meekness in the ashes of our sin. We mourn over what was, and then now we have the hope to look forward to what can be. We honestly find out who we are and who can save us. In Psalm 30, King David 
says, he said, I cried and you heard me, you healed me. And then he says this, you've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have turned for me. I didn't do it. You did it, done. You've loosed my sackcloth, clothed me with gladness. You've taken away the, the elements of mourning and grieving, and you've turned them into something glad. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I give you thanks forever. King David, centuries before King Jesus, says, you will turn my mourning into dancing. You will turn my sackcloth and my ashes into gladness and joy and praise. You will do what I cannot. King Jesus updates the prayer of King David, and he says, if you bring your honest self in today, if you've been carrying a weight, if you've got grief and shame and guilt and pain, and if you will just let go of the denial in your life, there is something better on tap for you. If you can be done with the do-it-yourself life, if you can be done with the denial of all that is wrong, if you can reach out for true blessing, for true life, not half-life, not fake life, not online life, not people might like me life, not I can get approval from these people life, true life, helplessly, wholly satisfied, profoundly satisfied life. If you can get to the place where you reach out for that, Jesus says that's where life is. Meekness, you'll inherit the earth. The kingdom of heaven is yours. I'll comfort you. In all the places we realize where we're failing, Jesus goes, I make it whole. I'm broken. I make it whole. I'm not quite enough. I'm more than enough. And I said, as interested as Jesus is in getting us into heaven, I think the servant on the mount is evidence he's more interested in getting heaven into us. The goal is not to try to white knuckle it through life until we die and maybe can go to the sweet by and by and join heaven and angels and all. That's not the goal. The goal is that heaven would invade today and now that you would begin living fully now. So our prayer today is that the kingdom of heaven would invade us. That as we pray that we are bankrupt and poor in spirit, that in the ashes of our lives we mourn, that we then appeal to something greater. And it feels like we're ending on this note that's like, ooh, that's, that's heavy and that's sad and that's, ooh, mourning. Just said Jesus updated the prayer of King David. Jesus went to the cross and his disciples fled and the sun went dark and everybody went, oh, this feels like it didn't end the way we thought it was going to end. And you and I have the luxury of being able to look back and see the story and go, that wasn't the end of the story that it requires a death to experience the resurrection. It requires the darkness to feel the true light. It requires the loss to know what it means to be found. It requires those things. And so for you and I, our path to the resurrected life is the same. We have to crucify the life that we now lead, that we might be resurrected into life with him, that we might know the fullness that he offers. We have to get rid of the emptiness that we bring. Only Jesus turns graves of sin and death into gardens of hope and life. And so our prayer is we come to you, Lord to forgive us and to mark us and to show us the way to true life. Let's pray. Lord, we are, um, even in our honesty, Father, I would confess to being hesitant to admitting that I'm not enough. It is hard to let go 
It's hard to let go of control. It's hard to admit that the problem is me. Everything in me wants to fix it and control it. Everything in me wants to tame it. And Lord, the evidence of my life is that until you take over, uh, nothing gets fixed. So Lord, uh, as a community, we bring our collective battles to you. We bring our problems to you. We bring our sin to you. We bring our brokenness to you. And collectively, we say um, we can't fix it. That we are spiritually bankrupt, can't afford the fix. And Father, we don't want to sit in the morning for long. We don't like to sit in the morning. We don't like the sadness. Lord, let us sit there as long as it takes so that we're ready for you, that we're ready for what might actually make us whole again. Father, give us the hope that comes with resurrection and redemption. Give us the hope that comes with restoration that you promised. Give us the hope that this life is not the end, that you are restoring us even now, that eternity is open now. Give us hope that in our meekness, in our humility, in our willingness to say we're not enough, that you will come and begin to restore our lives right in front of us. So Father, make us small, make us humble, make us meek. Remind us how much we need you and then meet us in that place of need that we might glorify you, that we might live in you, that we might share you with all this world. And all the brokenness we meet, we would not be hopeless or dismayed. We would be hopeful knowing that there is a healer. So Father, we lift this up to you. We ask you to be in our presence, to lead us, to guide us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.